if you think of innovation purely in terms of technology, then technology, new technology or new paradigm shift within a technological framework simply postpones the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. Sometimes when I give lectures, I give a slide slide of Sisyphus pushing the, the rock up to the top of the mountain and, uh, you know, rolls down again. He's got to push it back up. And that's us, except we're much worse than Sisyphus because we have to do it faster and faster. Sisyphus could do it at the same pace every time, but we are destined to have to do it faster and faster. And eventually that becomes impossible. The question is, can we change that? Because that is part of what's driving it. And what will we change it to? And that's the question. What do we change it to? Can we imagine still having the kind of vibrant, exciting society where we still are innovating and enjoying the products of our innovation and creativity, and yet not having this mad, open-ended growth leading to these kind of unintended consequences which are undermining us? I don't know the answer to that, other than the only way to do it is uh, if you're going to have social and cultural change, that needs also great political and social leadership. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you. Hear their struggles. And then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I think of Jeffrey's research as particularly valuable since it comes from different directions and draws from many different sources than most environmental approaches do. He takes a different approach to technology and innovation. He's not so big on technology. I mean, he is, he's big on it, but he recognizes its limitations and its potential for harm. Rarely do I hear of scientists saying that their research points to leadership. In this conversation, we move from research into more about action and leadership. You'll hear I begin with a few questions. Can we change the pattern he found and described and what does it look like? He talks about a solution based more in cultural change than technological. He talks about how he expects it to be based in altruism and love and things like that. Not the sort of thing you expect from scientists, at least not in public. In any case, I think that Jeffrey West listeners probably prefer science to me talking. So I'll leave you to the conversation with Jeffrey West. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Jeffrey West again. Jeff, how are you? I'm fine, Joshua. Nice to see you again, to chat with you again. I just got back from a trip, so I'm a little bit, you know, uh, at sixes and sevens, but good. Well, that happens because the exponent is high, and therefore you move faster than if you Absolutely. were living on a farm. Yeah. Actually, I want to get into that. You know, so since we last spoke, I've finished your book, and there were a lot of things in there that I wanted to cover now that I've gotten more depth out of it. And I took some notes and I'd like to go down, if it's okay with you, to say a couple things, a couple topics, and then maybe we could pick one or two to cover in a little more depth. And sure. at the very top level, for me, is that I read your book as a book of 
this came out before, is that your book was studying something, presenting the results of what you studied. And the last chapter was starting to get into what do we do about this? And for me, that's the starting point. And one of the things that I loved about our earlier conversations is that your results led you to say a leadership would be very important right now. Ironically, Donald Trump showed that leadership of the the kind of change that you think is necessary is possible. Ironic that it happened that way. Exactly. But with the wrong sign. Yeah. So for me, it came to me because I thought that's what was missing. And so I want to dig into your stuff for how we can use it for influencing culture. And so one big thing is that, all right, here's topic number one. Are we increasing the city growth, the exponent, the superlinearity? Is what we're doing, I presume that we're keeping with it, but when we have social media and we're connecting to lots more people and we get, is, is that making it more superlinear or, or is there something we can do to make it less superlinear? to make it just say linear. And if we do that, would that mean that we would decrease our impact on the environment? Although would we also risk cities disappearing because that seems to be something that makes them so stable. Then another thing was coming from limits to growth, having read limits to growth, that was influential on me. There's, it's one piece of the puzzle or one perspective. But from then it seemed like population was really a, a big issue. But I think from your, from reading yours, it seems not just overall population, but population density, the number of connections that people have between each other. And if that's the case, is, you know, there's a slow food movement out there. And I wonder if, which is, you know, for people who don't know, as opposed to the fast food movement. So fast food is all about getting really quick and whatever's cheapest and and slow food is like what's most delicious and most best for the land and so forth. Would doing something like a slow life movement affect the superlinearity? Is there something we could do to change culture to do that? This is where, what I'm thinking about. Can we influence that exponent in a way that's beneficial and if, without being detrimental? Is that something conceivable? Is that what you, have you thought about that? Yes, I have thought about that. <laughs> is that uh, what you think about all the time? All those things. No, you, your first question, um, of course, uh, also put it in terms of the fundamental dilemma that... Um, you know, the, the very dynamic that is, this is a diff- different way of saying it, the very dynamic that has led to our great success and the high quality and standard of living has built into it these kind of fatal flaws uh, that are undoing. And uh, so uh, one of the things that's unclear is if, uh, let's just say this, let's say we do have a mechanism for changing things, you know, for slowing things down, for decreasing uh, superlinearity and making it even, um, you know, sublinear, so to speak, but still have the kinds of things that that we'd like to have. Even if we could do all that, maybe by doing that, we um, undo, you know, the whole structure that we invented and um, developed. And so it's a huge dilemma. And I you know, obviously, I don't know the answer to that. But in answer to your one one specific thing you asked about, and that is that, um, you know, the evidence such as we have, is that um, we just keep track with that superlinearity, with roughly speaking, the same exponent, the exponent is, I don't know if I mentioned this in the previous discussion, one of the um, frustrations of the work, is that uh, we don't have access 
to significant historical data. You know, all our all the data is uh, comes from the last the best um, fifty to sixty years. Uh, we would love to have data um, on cities and social phenomena from you know uh, seventy five years ago, uh, two hundred years ago. 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, you know, to see... Rome you know, if, Egypt, uh, yeah. Now, I'm confident that there is such data. It's simply, you know, gathering that data, getting at that data. It's no doubt much of it is hidden in leather-bound books, handwritten and recorded, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and live, sitting in basements of various town halls and government offices maybe, or libraries, but no one is, you know, is, there should be a project, in fact, to really, um, to get that data so that we can answer some of these questions. So that, so that graduate students can get their PhDs. Yeah, you need a hundred, exactly, exactly. But a couple of my colleagues, one, um, Louis Spedencourt, who worked with me a lot on the city work, but also one of our postdocs, an anthropologist, who's now a professor at um, University of Colorado, they looked at a pre-Columbian urban system the urban system in Mexico of, I don't know, 50, we'll call them cities, but they're very small towns and villages, effectively, by today's standards. And they used proxies for various uh, metrics that archaeologists typically use, you know, number of pot shards and uh, measuring sizes of various things, sizes of houses, and, you know, knowing a little bit about some of the social structure. Whatever it is, I certainly don't have the competence to judge that, but these are conventional analyses done by archaeologists uh, and anthropologists. And uh, to cut a long story short, they discovered that in terms of socioeconomic metrics, analogous to the ones that we've used in the the modern cities, that Mexican pre-Columbian urban system scaled superlinearly in the same way that ours does. Uh-huh. And that was, you know, that's, uh, that was very nice supportive evidence that uh, what's going on here does have a kind of, uh, un- I use the word universal, application. And all the evidence seems to be that we've been following that. So now you bring up, but you brought up in your question, that's why I'm addressing it. Now, with the advent of IT, which is, you know, looks like a whole, possibly a whole new way of communicating. Has that uh, maybe that's breaking it in some way, or maybe it violates it in some way? Maybe it makes it more even more superlinear, yeah, um, or or whatever. We don't know now. So it turns out the only data I have gotten on this is a couple of things that um, some people in Europe did for me. One was some analyses of Reddit data on various things, and the other is on believe it or not, a Hungarian version of Facebook. So this is something that when Facebook, I guess, first of all, before Facebook even began, I believe, some Hungarian computer scientists actually had put together uh, something that's quite analogous to Facebook. And this was across Hungary and was extremely popular. It took off Zoom like Facebook did, but was then killed by Facebook. I mean, in the sense that, once Facebook came on and it became international, this yeah. thing died. But they had all the data. And what they did, inspired by this work, was to look at connectivity and other kinds of metrics from this data as a function of city size, just to follow the same thing and ask, 
just look at the connectivity through this Hungarian Facebook, uh-huh. and it just followed the same rules. This so is a there figure. Was nothing new. Yeah. Uh-huh. There was nothing new that was that was very satisfying to me because that's my own intuition was that it doesn't change the superlinearity because all this does come from uh, social interaction and human interaction, and that's almost embedded in our DNA. You know, it's somehow to do with the structure of our brains, the way we like to communicate, and so on. And what it would it simply be the next it step. Speed everything up. It just speeds everything up. Yeah, it's the it's next like the step. Telephone. Yeah. Just another step in the innovation cycles. Or, or you take the line, and now the point is moving. It's going to stay on the line, but go farther out. Yeah, it just goes further out. That's all. That's all. In quotes, all, but it's a big step. That's what it was doing. So nothing qualitatively was changed. It was just quantitative change of the same, but of the same structure. So those two ends of the spectrum, the pre-Columbian data on the one hand, and this kind of Facebook-like data, Facebook Reddit type of data, you know, right up to date, so to speak, both were um, consistent with all of the other stuff. So that leaves the question, the fundamental question, how do we disentangle the superlinear scaling from the superlinear growth? And um, how do we, and the speeding up of time, how do we sort of separate those? And uh, can we, and if so, how? In terms of cultural changes. So that we can have a sustainable future rather than this, this, uh, you know, mad rush um, like lemmings over the edge of the cliff, which is what we potentially are heading towards. And yeah. as you said earlier, you know, this, <laughs> this idea that we discussed, that uh, leadership, in order to solve it, we do need inspirational and charismatic leadership to help galvanize the forces that bring out the sense of altruism and the sense of community that people start to change their ways of doing things so that instead of always wanting more, that we become a little little more satisfied with what we have and adapt to uh, moving towards, in some areas at least, a kind of some version of a no-growth situation. Yeah, and I think that if there is effective leadership, then that would say that some change is possible. That doesn't necessarily mean that we can get off that exponent. No, no, it doesn't. But it's but I think that's a necessary but not necessarily sufficient condition. Yeah, and if we only stick with technology, technology will simply move us up the curve, but it'll will still stay on the curve. Yes. So technology alone, this suggests that technology alone is not a solution. It would simply... No, so us- what it does, my image uh, is of uh, the, you know, my, you know, technology from this viewpoint, that is, if you think of innovation purely in terms of technology, then technology, new technology or new paradigm shift within a technological framework simply postpones the problem. Um, it doesn't solve the problem. And, uh, you know, my image, and sometimes when I give lectures, I give a slide of, uh, you know, a slide of Sisyphus pushing the the rock up to the top of the mountain and, uh, you know, rolls down again. He's got to push it back up. And that's us, except we're much worse than Sisyphus because we have to do it faster and faster. faster. Mm -hmm. Sisyphus, you know, could do it at the same pace every time. But uh, we are, are destined to have to do it faster and faster. And eventually that becomes impossible. That's my concern. That's, that's a kind of, um, an, you know, um, a symbolic way of talking about it. So to me, the question is, can we get the benefits of cities? So New York, the average person is, has less environmental impact than other cities in the United States because of the population density. 
but we're also continuing. We're also walking faster and we're getting the alcoholism and all the other things and, and we're using more resources. So if we wanted to get the benefits, could we have the population density without the, oh, and also to get animals, I mean, from, from bacteria to blue whales, everyone's on the line to get on. But why? I think that they're on the line because there's evolutionary forces that are keeping you, they could go off the line, but then they're not going to live as successfully. So they're going to either, that species is going to go extinct or it's going to get back on the curve somehow. Now, people possibly could choose to do, to behave in ways that would move them off the line in a way that cells of an animal can't do. Yeah. So that's what we've done so far. We've stayed on the line. No, we've stayed off the line. I mean, the, the biological line, we've gone way off. We as humans. Yes. Human oh, beings. I- you know, now, as I think I said... Uh, or, oh, we use like 11,000... Uh, we're like a dozen elephants or, you know... Uh, a whale, yeah. 30,000-kilogram gorilla. And I mean, for a city, if we could get together and do it, in principle, we could get a city that was off the off the line. Say that we could... In a way that most... That animals generally can't because evolutionary forces. So we've just never had the awareness that as a group of citizens in a city... If we behaved in a certain way, we could get off the line. What would we do? Is it that we would go for a slow life movement of choosing to have fewer connections and yet living close to each other? Well, the trouble is it's, you know, that's my, my big concern is that we, we have so, we've evolved to, um, in a certain way, biologically, over, you know, an exceedingly long period of time, you know, many hundreds of thousands, million years. But this present evolutionary trend where we became social and formed communities and cities, communities beyond hunter-gatherers, where we formed uh, what became cities, has all happened in the last, really, in the last few hundred years. I mean, we started a few thousand years ago, but the effects that we're really dealing with primarily can be traced to the Industrial Revolution. So it's a couple hundred years. And this extraordinary change has taken place. And the wonder of it all, to tell you the truth, is that we've been so extraordinarily adaptable to that. I mean, it's hard to believe that in 200 years, we've adapted from, you know, uh, being good at uh, tilling the land to being able to do what we're doing here and create this stuff. And, uh, you know, at my age, I can still sort of learn a new app. And uh, I learned to write in, in tech. And so on. That's pretty, you know, I'm not saying I'm amazing. We are amazing because, you know, it's, it's extraordinary that we're adaptable, that adaptable. But it's, you know, more and more is coming at us faster and faster. And uh, we're living longer and longer. So uh, that seems also to be an untenable situation. So there are all these things uh, coming together in a way that makes some, either there's going to be some, you know, dramatic tipping point, which, uh, from which we, you know, where the whole social fabric undoes, or we're going to, uh, you know, I will, the question, the big question is, or can we go through such a tipping point and have a soft landing? And what would it look like? Yeah. Well, and, and yes, and that's hard to know what it would look like. We don't, you know, I have no idea. I mean, you know, some people on the one hand, uh, on the, the one extreme is, that, uh, you know, we're all going to become cyborgs and between AI and uh, machine learning and all the data we collect and the fusion of machines with our brains 
it's going to, you know, we're going to live happily ever after. Uh, not only that, we're going to live on the moon and, uh, and Mars and uh, everything's going to be fantastic, even though there might be 12 billion people on, on the planet. That's one extreme version of optim- uh, a highly optimistic it's- way. Except that it doesn't fit with your data because no, that no, would... I, I of course yeah. I don't. I, I think that's completely. I mean, well, it may happen in a in a, a much longer period, but it ain't going to happen in the next you know twenty five fifty years. The other extreme is the whole system collapses, and we sort of effectively go back to if we survive it all, we go back to being sort of some version of hunter-gatherers, you know, in some very much more primitive form. I don't subscribe to either of those. And I also don't know what, I have no, you know, one can, it's sort of fun in quotes to try to speculate what kinds of things could happen. But it's, it's very much in the realm of science fiction, I think. Yeah, because if all the technology up until now has kept us on the line, then the likelihood of a new technology, you know, one thing that science keeps drilling into us is if you think you're in some special time, you're probably not. You're probably not, exactly. So the chances of of like the new bunch of technology getting us off the curve is very low. We're just going to be on the curve at a a farther, like... We're very, very good at thinking we're in a special time. I think I quote in the book uh, something that was uh, uh, very amusing to me when I was doing the research on the book. Um, I don't know if you saw this part of the book where I uh, quote... John Maynard Keynes, the great economist, and also Charles, Sir Charles Darwin, the grandson of the Charles Darwin, but also uh-huh. a distinguished scientist himself, who both in the 40s and maybe into the early 50s, when they were talking about the future, you know, they were brainstorming, speculating about what the future would be. And the biggest concern they had was that with the coming of all the great technology, Oh, the people have too much free time. So there's going to be too much time. What are we going to yeah. do with our time? And uh, the work week will very short, shortly, sh- you know, shrink to twenty odd hours a week. And uh, you know, uh, the big challenge for society is to provide something for people to do. And uh, the great irony is, it's gone exactly the other way. People, in fact, don't have any time to do anything. Yeah. And, and in fact. Uh, one of the things I speculated in that book was that in some fantastically mysterious way, we've done that in a way because what we do, we maybe we only do spend 20 hours a week on our real work and the rest of the time is doing horseshit like this. (laughs) (laughs) That is, we're looking at our iPhones and our iPads and watching videos and sending cute little tweets and looking at Facebook and all the rest, and that's occupying an enormous amount of time. So that was just a ironic speculation on my part. I'm thinking about the exponent. What's setting the exponent is the space-filling part of... It's the connectivity. It's the... Den- it's yes, the, it's the degree it's a dimensionality of... It's the dim- how we interact, the, the, the social network structure, you know, of um, between us and the kind of networks that each of us forms around us. I'm just speculating that if we, if there was some big movement to spend more time with your mother and father and spend more time with your family and less time with hundreds of friends or thousands of friends on internet and so forth, yes. would that lower the exponent? Yes. Now, if we, now I'm not saying it's possible, but if it did happen, would that lower the exponent to where it was linear? Yeah, well, it, it could if, so part of 
the a significant piece of that idea is that uh, there's more and more interactions. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's giving right, but those interactions are leading to more and more ideas, mm-hmm. okay? and those ideas eventually um, percolate into major innovations. I mean, that's sort of the simplistic way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. So at the one level, it's slowing down that process in some way and stopping it leading to this open-ended growth. And at the you know, it is true that sort of mechanistically, the degree of social interaction is leading in a certain causal way to greater innovations. So one has to dig deeper into ensuring that if you were to somehow, if you had some magic wand, and you could decrease the social connectivity. Yeah. The information that's being exchanged is the kind of information that decreases the increasing pace of life and the increasing continuous feedback mechanisms that give rise to more and more innovations that give rise to greater and greater growth. Mm-hmm. So it's that, you know, they're all intertwined. The trouble is untangling all that is problematic. But also the question is, there's a kind of conceptual question, question, can you, can you disentangle those? Yeah, and I want, to, I want to leave that off for now, because to me the question is, what would that world look like? Because if we don't know what, it, before knowing what it looks like, I don't want to try to figure out how to get there. Because I'm thinking, okay, first of all, the more I learn about reading works like yours, it feels like the more people keep thinking, the next technology will do it. But I feel like that's, that's like stepping on the gas or yeah. I, I guess just keeping going the way things are. And it increasingly feels like whenever, some, someone's like whenever someone says LEDs are so much more efficient than incandescents, I'm like, yeah, and soon we're going to be using LEDs more than we ever used incandescents. Of course, that's more the, exactly. Yeah, so Jevons paradox or rebound effects. And it's clear like the technology is what's, it's, it would be really weird for the thing that's causing all these problems to be also the solution. So it seems like the opposite might... No. So that's why I think it's not technology in the end. The technology it's relationships. It's a social... No, no, I, I may be wrong in that. And it may be that indeed with, um, you know, AI and uh, all the rest of it um, and, and smart this and smart that, that maybe, you know, something else will change dramatically. But uh, one of the things that I often emphasize that people don't realize, you know, we feel that, Indeed, there has been an extraordinary change with the introduction of, of, of IT and so forth. But I don't think it, it is in the same ballpark even as the kind of change that was invoked by two things in the 19th century. One was the invention of uh, steam trains, of trains. Mm-hmm. And the second, the invention of the telephone. Because let's take the telephone. Until the telephone came along, Unless you were in the same room as someone else, you couldn't have instantaneous communication. And even if you were in the same town, it took, typically took hours or a day. And if you weren't in the same time, town, it took days. And if you're in a different country, it might take weeks. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly, for the first time in human history, you could have what we now claim we have, global communication principle, instantaneously. Secondly. So you contracted time. Time suddenly was contracted, unbelievably. But then uh, with the coming of the railroads, 
you know, you could, uh, where everybody was now spatially connected. Uh, most people, until the railroads and the introduction of relatively cheap travel over very long distances, uh, most people, you know, didn't move more than 20 miles from their home in their entire life. That was, you know, the way people live. So um, until that happened, uh, we were, everybody was confined in space. So by the end of the 19th century, we had opened up space and contracted time. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that effect was totally profound. So what did it do? It speeded up the pace of life. That's what those two things did. Uh-huh. So that technology made life for many people much better, but it also started on this, uh, um, this road to open-ended growth and increasing the pace of life and creating all of these unintended consequences with which we're now dealing. And the coming of the internet, the coming of even faster communication, and this kind of, I mean, unbelievable that we can talk to one another across 3,000 miles like this and see one another and and so forth. It's phenomenal. It was the stuff of dreams uh, not so long ago. Uh, And it's, you know, we enjoy it and indulge in it. But it isn't solving the big problem. Yeah, so what, uh, is, you know, what would a solution look it's like? It's, in fact, adding to the problems. Can you actually. speculate on what a solution would look like? Well, my speculation is all, that's where I got to where we, got, where we started this conversation today and where we had talked last time about, was that we have to, I mean, one of the problems that has occurred um, in recent years is that uh, the words technology and innovation became synonymous. And so we thought of innovation. As soon as you think of a major innovation or paradigm shift, and now one thinks immediately of some huge technological innovation like driverless cars or AI and so on. So it, it has occurred to me that the major innovation that we now need is a social or cultural innovation, something that restores us to a, a place in our social interactions, which is much more focused on altruism, on maybe slowing things down. Depth uh, as opposed to being quantity. Defense, being less greed-oriented. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that much of what is happening is governed by a very primitive form of wanting more. You know, not wanting more, wanting something that's better than what we have. Now, so it's a, it's a delicate issue because that has been a driving force in um, human history and human accomplishment. So uh, nevertheless, you know, it, it is kind of weird to, to think that, you know, if someone is uh, earning a million dollars a year, that they'd actually like to earn $10 million a year. Or if they're worth a billion dollars, they'd actually like to be worth $10 billion. You know, that's, it's kind of a, a slightly perverse morality and ethical position, I, as far as I'm concerned. But that's true all the way down through society. The part of it is to want the new thing, part of it want more. So the question is, can we change that? Because that is part of what's driving it. And what will we change it to? And that's the question. What do we change it to? Can we imagine still having the kind of vibrant, exciting society where we still are innovating and, and enjoying uh, the products of our innovation and creativity? and yet not 
having this mad open-ended growth leading to these kind of unintended consequences which are undermining us. And I don't know the answer to that other than the only way to do it is uh, if you're going to have social and cultural change, uh, that needs also great political and uh, social leadership. But, you know, it has to be, you know, some someone or some group of people that uh, start to make, see that there's, A, that this is problematic, what we're, the system we're in now is problematic. And that it is a system. I think that's the other thing that is not recognized, is to recognize that all these various things that we participate in, including all of the unintended consequences, are actually part of an integrated system. So we need, you know, also that aspect. That yeah, which of- people not very good at understanding systems or how to influence them. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. I would like to propose to you a couple speculations then on my part of yeah. what it might look like, because I don't want to start trying to figure it out yet figure out how to do it if I don't, because to be very effective in going in, in an ineffective direction is not useful. And so to get to, I mean, to me, you, sure. you, you talked about some things. To me, it seems like lower connectivity and moving at the pace of, to deliberately, well, for whatever reason, if walking faster happens, then it would be walking slower. <laughs> if having lots of connectivity, having fewer connections, but that would mean depth of connection. Instead of saying, stop making all these connections, it would be, get deeper connections with the people you spend time with, sure. which would probably be your family and people yes. who gave birth to you and that you gave birth to and things like that. And it would be, it would be, so it would be depth. But it I think that's be, implied what I meant by altruism. I usually, I would have also used the word love is to, you know, sort of, can we increase love and altruism, mm-hmm. which is along those lines, increase the depth of interaction rather than, uh, in other words, the quality of interaction, yeah. rather than the quantity. So it would, it would be a world in which people, valued quality over quantity, depth over breadth, enjoyment over like rapidity and not necessarily rewarding the next newest, greatest thing. I mean, the Amish are one example. I wouldn't want to be Amish. They, they enforce it in ways that I don't, that aren't comfortable to me. Sure. But th- as far as I can tell, they're stable and they might not be doing lots of innovation, as you said, yes. but they might be very happy. Yeah, so that brings on a whole other dimension, right? This, this is a, a very tricky issue, of course, the question of contentment, happiness, fulfillment, living of, you know, a, a fulfilling life. Uh, these are very hard things to um, quantify, to measure, to judge, and it does involve judgment calls, of course. You know, so the other question is, that lies under that, if we want to sustain the planet or wanted to sustain socioeconomic life, we have to ask, you know, what is it that we're trying to sustain? You know, what are the values or the ways of being that we're trying to sustain? I mean, what is the point? That would, that would be sustainable. Because if it's just yes, growth at any cost, it doesn't... Yes. So what, what is the not... point? You know, what is, you know, is, there, is, is it just for the sake of doing it that we are 
making things faster and faster and, quote, better and better. And that's why it does require, that's where it seems to me why we need, you know, leadership or, well, what I called for in my book, which I called for before, is something sort of slightly <laughs> loony in a way, is that we need to start thinking about a grand unified theory of sustainability in which we bring all, all of the players involved, meaning society involved, to start having a multiple dialogue and multiple understand, reaching uh, research into understanding what it is that we're trying to be. That's what I'm asking you. <laughs> and I don't know the yeah. answer. You know, I mean, I, I sit around bullshitting with lots of people, <laughs> but I don't have any answer, you know, that, in other words, what it needs, because I do think that it's worth spending um, enormous amounts of money on uh, bringing uh, scientists, politicians, policymakers, futurist thinkers. So SFI plus, like yes, take SFI they, and do more. Bringing yeah. these people together, you know, uh, to really start asking, are there models, are there scenarios, are there simulations where we can try to understand what the kind of society it is that we want it, us to be and I, that we want to sustain. I, that's a very dangerous game, by the way. I would not stop anyone from doing that, but I think these variables are so great and the time so limited that I, at some point, leadership leaders sometimes you have to get enough and then act enough and to so know that you're not going to make some big disaster. We don't have disaster. time to do any of this. That's been the, the issue. Yeah. yeah, but also acting too quickly or rashly is itself a mistake too. And so I find myself in a uh, in a in an incredibly difficult position. Now, how about this, though? There, I think there are situations where people expect that things could work. All these people who say, we can just get, to, if we trash Earth, what, we can just go to Mars. We can go to the moon. But the flight to Mars takes years. And so people who think that we can't sustain things on Earth expect it for at least several years and people can, can be in, in equilibrium in the spacecraft. And I think that people, I think that there have been civilizations that have endured for some time on modestly sized islands without too much interaction overseas. And when you know that there's 10,000 of us and the land can sustain 10,000, then at some number, it seems like it could work. And maybe we could take, okay, what works in small cases like that, can we do it on a slightly bigger scale, slightly bigger scale? I mean, yeah, my general way of solving hard problems is solve a simpler problem that's related and then build from that. Maybe we should just stick some people on an island for a while. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, you know, I mean, you could think of America and other parts of the world as being places where uh, the analog to Mars in a previous time, right, where people came to form a new life with new ideals and so forth. And uh, to some extent, it was very successful, obviously, in some metrics. Nevertheless, this, this kind of dynamic, uh, which is integral to being a human being, eventually took over, right? I mean, and has led to America also being, America is no different than any other country in facing the same sequence of problems, uh, partially because the problems are of global nature. So, and it is ironic that we have a president that doesn't want to think globally. You know, yeah. so that's why we need a, a kind of anti-Trump. We need yeah, someone to so think crazy. globally and systemically in the big picture. Now, now we have to be, I have to be sensitive to your time. And yes, my God, yes. I have, to, I have something in five minutes. And I can't wait to continue this conversation. We probably won't record it, but this is, this is tremendously valuable to me, even as much as 
these open-ended questions are still tremendously unanswered, but at least there's direction yeah. to ask and to, and at least it rules out certain things, at least for me. And I really, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I mean, I have to make a comment that when you talked about that you bullshit around over there, that I have a comment that I wrote, page 340, funny remark about how bullshitting wrapped in superb PowerPoint. I love that. <laughs> I hope you felt really great when you wrote that. My book? Yeah, it was in the book and it made me laugh out loud. Oh, God. Oh, because I was talking about, I think I was talking about things like TED and yeah, uh, exactly. events. Yeah. And then I have this other thing that we're not going to get into, but I was really curious if people have worked out thermodynamic properties of cities like temperature and entropy and equivalence, but we'll have to leave that for when we're in person or something like that. Um, well, listen, I do have to go. I'm sorry. Okay. I, I realize. But uh, yeah, so let's, uh, I have a terrible, uh, my schedule up through October and uh, until Thanksgiving is very, is, is murder, as I, we, we talked about last time. Uh-huh. But uh, we should, let's exchange stuff. So we'll figure out by email of, of yeah, how yeah, the exactly, visit will get. Exactly. So if it's through Thanksgiving, maybe I should try to stay in LA through Thanksgiving and try to pass through San, uh, Santa Fe on the way back in December. December. Yes, December is much better. Okay, because I also looked at a map and saw how far Santa Fe is from LA. Yeah, I was well, like, oh, it's not. People don't realize. Well, we're well, the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. The bottom of the Rocky Mountains. So, so coming on the way back might be better for me. So, so we'll do it by email, and I'll let you get to your thing. Let's go by email, and we'll brainstorm some things, et cetera, et cetera. Thank you very much. This is tremendously valuable for me. Have a good weekend. And I'm glad this worked. I'm sorry last time we had the frustration. Thank you again, and I'll talk to you again soon. Take care. Take care, Joshua. Yes, yeah. okay, bye. Take care. Bye. 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 Jeffrey West's research and discussion points me to... Cultural change is what we need more than anything else, more than technological change and innovation brought about by leadership, political and social leadership, and that we should be careful about technology and innovation. He's not alone in this skepticism and care that he looks at technology and innovation from his perspective because of this rapidity of how things change. There are many knowledgeable scientists and engineers who get what he's suggesting, that technology contributes to environmental degradation, even increasing efficiency. Social connectivity seems to be a problem from Jeffrey West's perspective, that it leads to rapidity and rapidity and and these changes. I couldn't get a clear statement of how lower social connectivity would look, but it seems to me like slow life. If I can use an analogy to slow food, people who know the slow food movement as contrasting to the fast food movement is instead of getting things as fast as you can and as quickly as you can, as efficiently as you can, to enjoy what you're doing, to enjoy going to the farm and having slow food, enjoying slow meals. And I think increasingly of a slow life, not a slow purposeless life. But when I talk to people who live more along a slow life line, their lives are more about meaning, value, purpose. They seem less unhappy. They don't seem caught up in opioid crises and stress, obesity, hedonic treadmills. You know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's not obvious where we should go from here, but I think Jeffrey's research points in a clear direction of slowing down, looking for technology to make things more efficient in the short term but in the long term, looking for cultural change driven by leadership. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, 
but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.